I'm here with Stacey Friedenthal from the University of Denver. Um, and yeah, Stacey, you were part of the lived experience panel that we live streamed yesterday here at yes. the conference, which I thought was, it was my highlight so far of the event. I thought it was really amazing panel, really great conversation. It really engaged people in the room, but also on social media. Um, so yeah, tell us about a bit about your story and why you were invited to, to participate in that. Sure, sure. So um, I'm a psychotherapist and a suicidologist, so I guess what people call a clinical suicidologist. <clears throat> but before I was either of those, I myself uh, went through suicidal crises in my 20s. And um, I'm not sure where, to, where the entry is to talk about it. But, I mean, the, the gist, I wrote a column for the New York Times a few years ago kind of coming out quote, quote, and uh, talking about the fact that I'd been keeping this secret for many years because of stigma and fear. And, you know, a lot of that stigma was external, but some of it was also my own self-stigma, and that I didn't want to hide it anymore, and that I thought maybe it could help people to be open about my experience. And the gist of that experience is that when I was in my 20s, I just went through a really hard time with depression and suicidal thoughts that became really obsessive and um, very focused, intense thoughts of um, not just of suicide, but you know, of everything that was wrong with me and and my my station in life, and that I didn't think things would ever get better. And by station in life, I don't mean like socioeconomic status, I just mean feeling like I was very alienated and um, couldn't function the way everyone around me could. How did you get through that? Um, a number of things. I, I, you know, we talked yesterday about the narrative, I think, you know, the good narrative, or I don't remember if that was the phrase, but the recovery narrative, and I think mine doesn't fit the dominant recovery narrative these days, and that's that medication helped me a lot. And I see on Twitter the phrase med shaming, and there are a lot of people on Twitter who are very anti, <clears throat> excuse me, anti-medication, but it helped me tremendously. And, but I also was in psychotherapy as a patient, and, and, and I did a lot of really hard work around mindfulness and self-compassion and meditation in just really making a very concerted effort to kind of break what I would call the habits of my mind, where I would go to a very negative, dark place and just really trying to challenge that. So what I would say is that in my, the, way I interpret it, my, the way I interpret my experience is that medication enabled all those other things to happen, and that if I hadn't been stabilized with medication, I don't know that I could have gotten into the mental space of meditating. Do you see what I mean? Mm. So, totally. So, did that experience inspire you to become a psychotherapist and a suicidologist, or would that have happened anyway? Do you think? Well, it, it kind of was a prolonged experience. When I first became very depressed, I was a newspaper reporter, and I was unhappy with being a reporter for a variety of reasons, but felt very trapped and didn't know what. You know, I was like 22 and thought, this is the only thing I know how to do in my life. You know, it's just so absurd in hindsight. But at the time, it was not absurd at all. And um, so that is that's, that led to my wanting to be a therapist in terms of um, 
I went through a suicidal crisis. I was hospitalized. And then afterwards, I wanted to volunteer at a suicide hotline because I felt like, I mean, this, I think, is the value of lived experiences. I felt like I could see in myself and in what other people, and, and in the other people around me, what we weren't getting. You know, like that, you know, people wouldn't listen and they would immediately jump in and, and try to fix it or, you know, give really ridiculous advice. Well-intentioned, but ridiculous advice. And um, so I wanted to volunteer at a hotline. And then it was after that that I started my master's program. So then I was already on the path to become a therapist. And then I had the suicidal crisis that I wrote about in the New York Times. So when did you come out as somebody who has experienced suicidal thinking? I think it was almost three years ago. It was in the spring of, I think, 2017, if I'm remembering correctly. So that took a while then. <laughs> 22 years. And how, what led you up to that decision to, to do that, to come out? Um, you know, for a long time I was aware that I was carrying a secret and I was conscious of it. And it took a lot of energy, you know, to to kind of hide. And um, and then I just started noticing people around me speaking more openly about their own experiences. And I felt kind of envious and in awe of them. And then as I talked about on the lived experience panel, then I felt that I had established myself professionally in, in a way that I didn't have as much to lose if I came out. So I had tenure at my university. I had just finished a book. I don't think it's any coincidence that it was basically the um, about two months after I submitted the manuscript for my book that I had the article published in the New York Times. So I think that just gave that just gave me a lot of confidence of, okay, you know, no one can take this away from me. You know that that uh, there, there's a. Are you familiar with the site livethroughthis.org? No. Oh, gosh, you really should look at it. It's um, by an American photographer where she goes around the country and takes photos and interviews people who have survived a suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. And there's a therapist who's on there, and he made this comment, and I, I can't remember what his wording was, but he basically said, because he, he came out and he said, you know, it's not like now that people know this about me, I'm no longer skilled as a therapist. You know, so so I felt like, okay, I've established myself. It's not like my coming out can undo everything that I've done. So I felt safer. I guess being open about mental illness, just in the public, is something that only recently we've kind of started to get a positive message out there about. And it seems that the message is almost too positive now, that you're sort of, come out about your mental illness, everything will be brilliant, everyone will accept you, and, you know... We don't seem to stress too much about the negative connotations of that. But coming out as a mental health professional about your mental illness, I think, is much more complex. Um, and a lot of people I've spoken to about this have said, you know, they waited till they retired. So what are the kind of positives and negatives that you've experienced having done it? Sure. Well, I would say the immediate positive is just the people who have contacted me, whether by email or showing up in my office at my university and saying, oh, my gosh, you know, it means so much to me to know that it's possible to get out of this. You know, I, I had a student who had no idea about my situation, and I had no idea about their situation. And they came to my office crying, saying, what you described in your essay is exactly what I'm living. And I didn't see, 
you know, they said, I've been considering dropping out because I didn't think I could be a mental health professional anymore with the problems I'm having. And so, I mean, that's the immediate benefit for me has just been, wow, this really does help people to, to have um, an example of someone who, who is going through or has gone through a very hard time, but still, you know, that hasn't canceled out the possibility of, of success in the future as a mental health professional. Um, other advantages, personally, there's been advantages for me in terms of I don't have to spend that energy hiding anymore, you know, and that, I mean, that just takes a lot of energy mentally to be filtering oneself. Um, there are negatives that I would love to study, but I've thought about it and I might be accused of being biased since obviously I've come out, but I would really love to to research or for somebody to research what the effects are for clients of a professional who discloses mental illness. You mean discloses in, in public or discloses particularly to a client? It could be both. I myself don't disclose directly to clients, but because I had an essay published in a major newspaper, some people had already read it and that was why they sought me out. So then in the first session or even on the phone in the intake, they'd say, I want to come see you because I know you'll get it, you know. So, um, so you know, that's obviously a very biased sample. I'm getting the people who viewed it favorably and came to see me, but there's probably a lot of people who read it and said, oh, I would never want to. I mean, I don't know, but, you know, they may have read it and thought I wouldn't want to go to her you know, base. You know, I would want somebody who, for whatever reason, doesn't have that history. I, but clients and patients get it anyway, don't they? Even if they don't know, you know, the, the way you respond to their description of what it's like to be depressed or to be anxious tells a lot about your experience. I think so. I mean, I remember one time I had a client where they were describing their depressive experience so painfully, and and I, I responded in a way where I thought that was very revealing I just said it's so hard isn't it and I said it in a way that was just very heartfelt like they had to know that I've been there but I have a website called speakingofsuicide.com and you know I write a lot on that website about the suicidal experience and I get really hostile emails from people and this was part of my motivation too in writing that essay was um, that I get these emails from people saying, you know, you are not qualified to speak about suicide because you've never been suicidal. And, you know, you. one of the quotes is something about you sit on a, your high horse, you know, your, I think they said your high horse of happiness. And, and there's a lot of emails like that. And so it wasn't coming through in those writings that I've had those experiences until I explicitly said it. And even then I get emails from people saying, well, it must have not been that bad. You know, you don't really know what pain is. So, um, so, so the good, to go back to your question, the good would be that I do think it helps people. One, it helps people studying to become mental health professionals to know that they still can be a mental health professional and to have a picture of what that can look like. But I think it also just helps in general when we're open, you know, that then it helps kind of, like I said yesterday, it kind of helps erode stigma the more people who talk about it. The negatives, I had some negative reactions in my family. And it actually was the opposite of what I expected. I thought I might have some negative repercussions professionally. 
and that my family was safe, but it kind of went in the other direction. What more change do you think we need to have so that more health professionals can be open about their own lived experience? Well, definitely, I think there are some licensing boards that use it against people. I've heard in the United States of several states with psychiatrists where psychiatrists have been, there was a, I mean, this is an older case. I don't know if this could still happen. I think it was about 15, maybe even 20 years ago, but there was a psychiatrist who his license was imperiled. Somebody at a med- at his medical school had, had died by suicide, so he felt moved to share with the students that he has bipolar disorder and he wanted them to know, you know, it's okay to get help and I get help. And then he had to fight for his license for the next few years. And so I think, you know, a a must is that licensing boards need to not hold it against people. The, The threshold should be, is somebody impaired now with clients, not have they ever have a mental illness you know so is somebody now in a mental state where where they're doing harm to people well that would be a concern not just for mental illness but for any condition you know if somebody is harming a client because of their behaviors um so I think that's first is that we need to stop that kind of discrimination at the licensure level um but otherwise I think just the more people who will take the risk of sharing and I would say the more people who are in a position of safety and privilege who can afford to take the risk I kind of felt an obligation once I felt I was at that place because there are people who can't take that risk and I recognize that you know I mean one of the things I heard after um, my essay because I got a lot of emails about it one of the things I heard was I'm immigrating to the United States and this will be held against me if people know. And you know what? They're right. I've heard of people, I've read about people at the Canadian border being turned away because they have a suicide attempt on their health record. So, so you know, I think we need to be realistic that there are people for whom disclosure can be damaging. But the people for whom it, it can't or, or for whom it won't be terribly damaging then I hope that they'll, they'll speak more openly about their experiences. We've heard a lot at this conference about co-producing um, research, services, information with people with lived experience. And the fact that there's a lived experience panel and there's lots of people here with lived experience is great. Um, but I wondered what you thought about reaching a wider group of people with lived experience because um, inevitably it's often white middle-class women that get involved in that kind of <laughs> nothing personal about this comment but it's often that you know people that have the the privilege and the backgrounds to be able to use that platform and obviously there's a lot of people maybe the majority of people who are suicidal don't have that background so how can we be more inclusive that's a great question and I mean that's it was wonderful yesterday that the panel did also have a person of color, a man who was a person of color. But you're right about white middle class women. They also tend to think tend to, I think, make up most of the mental health profession, at least in in the school where I teach. It's almost all white middle class women who are students. I think it's about ten percent male. 
Um, but so your question, that's a, you know, that's a good question. I think really by going to the front lines of the community mental health agencies where people are being served in making clear that we want people's input, you know, and that, I mean, I, I do think there's a danger of, of a bias that if the only stories that get out there are the people who recovered quickly or well or in a kind of socially acceptable kind of way, that that we can create a, a whole other level of alienation of like, oh, I'm the bad suicidal person versus I'm the good suicidal person. And I don't know if you're familiar with the writings of Jess Stoneman Rainey, but she's written very beautifully about this. I think she has something on the Mad in America side about this, about how she's not a model. I, I wish I remember the phrase she uses, but basically that she's not a good recovery model, you know, that... Um, and that we need to be welcoming of all, all examples of recovery. So I would say really, you know, recruiting people at the front lines, people who aren't fully recovered. I mean, it's tricky because yesterday someone asked me after the panel, how do we involve people when it might traumatize them further or trigger them or, um, you know, they may be in a place where they're not able to to speak about their experiences. I think some people take that concern too far and try to decide for people that, oh, well, we can't have somebody talk to us unless they've been, you know, in recovery for two years. And it's like, well, let the, you know, for me, when I volunteered at the crisis hotline, I don't think I'd been out of the hospital a, a full year. And my therapist wouldn't write a letter of permission permitting me to do that. Because they said on the application, if you're in therapy, we want a letter from your therapist. So I just didn't tell them, you know, I didn't lie. I just left it blank. So, um, so I think, you know, we need to allow people to make that decision for themselves and not be paternalistic about it. But we also need to be mindful that that may be um, an issue someone raises. I feel like I'm kind of getting off your topic because I'm going down this little mental rabbit hole. But the... Um, the gist, though, is that the more people we can get who are actually being served now and not just people who have been served in the past and have kind of come up through their struggles, but people who are really still living it, then the more authentic and diverse the, the information we get will be.